we have two governance parties and they're both capitalist and you will fashion your politics accordingly. That's why we don't have a left electoral politics in this country. We are experiencing an acute crisis of capitalism and the younger folks of all races know it. That's why they favor Bernie Sanders, because they don't see any future in this system. That's why they have no problem with the word socialism, because they've had too damn much of capitalism, and they don't like it. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president. It is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. And yes, this is Steve Grumbine with Macro and Cheese. Folks, we're taking a different path today. I normally talk about economics, as you know, and the political economy. Today, we're going to touch on something that I feel very passionately about, and yet at the same time, don't feel I have the proper station to be able to speak to this. So, In looking around and trying to find a way to address this, this incredible article comes out from Black Agenda Report. And I'm reading it and I'm reading it and it's talking about the way that Black people work within the Democratic Party and how they vote in fear and so forth. And I'm reading this and I'm like, my goodness, I've never read anything so well put together. And then I look and sure enough, it's my guest who is Glenn Ford, who is the founder and executive editor of Black Agenda Report. He's been a journalist since the 70s and just a phenomenal voice. In speaking with Ajamu Baraka, he couldn't say enough good things about Glenn. And so I reached out to him and he was happy to come on. So with that, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. And I, of course, apologize to you and to your listeners for the lack of quality in my voice, but this is the best I can do. The voice is ailing. Well, let me tell you, it's the content that I'm concerned with because you've got so much information and so much knowledge. I'm just so thankful that you're taking the time to be with us today. This most recent bout of Bernie Sanders part two, if you will, we saw part one where Bernie tried to create this revolution and you know, it seemed like people were kind of wishy-washy and they weren't quite sure what to make of him. And he did not connect with the African-American community and was absolutely shut down by the Clinton firewall, if you will, the South. And we thought over the years, you're watching him make inroads. You're seeing people like Nina Turner and Killer Mike and others that are working with him and trying to help him expand his reach. And, you know, he's got some great guys in Cornell West and others that have spoken out and joined forces with him. And you look and down in the South, you've got Clyburn who basically says, you know, shut this thing down and goes right there for Joe Biden. And it just fell apart. And for myself, I was crushed 
And looking back, it's like, how could we have prevented this? And I read your article and it's like, wow. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about the history of the Democratic Party and how it became the home, if you will, of African-Americans? Well, first of all, you know, it's only been these last two election cycles that we've seen such intense scrutiny of Black folks and their voting patterns. The Democratic Party has always taken for granted the Black vote and assumed that the Black vote would be on its side in any kind of contest with the Republicans. But nobody's asked why Black folks vote the way they do. But now, because there is a profound split in the Democratic Party occasioned by Bernie Sanders in his 2016 race, and now again, four years later, now we see that Black people are being described in the corporate media as moderates or even conservative Democratic voters, which is crazy, just plain crazy to describe Black politics as in any way conservative or even moderate. In fact, Black folks are the most left-leaning political constituency in the country. And every poll ever since they have been including Black people in national polling has shown this to be the case. The problem is that Black folks do not vote their actual ideology. They don't vote their perceived political interests when they participate in primaries in the Democratic Party. And the reason has everything to do with the duopoly system. The reason is not based on Black folks' ideology, not based on some conservatism on the part of Black people, but based on the way the electoral system is structured in the United States. When you have a duopoly system in which only two parties are allowed to participate, only two governing parties, which play tag team with each other, take turns governing, but only two are allowed in a racist society like the United States, one of those parties is going to be what we at Black Agenda Report call the white man's party. That is, a party whose organizing principle is white supremacy. And in the United States, there has always been a white man's party, even before the Civil War, before emancipation. One of the two parties was always the more pro-slavery party. That was the white man's party of that time. After the Civil War, the Democratic Party was the white man's party. And then they switched places around 1968, and the Republicans became the white man's party. And with Donald Trump, we have the most raw version of a white man's party with an overt racist at the helm. But when you have this duopoly system and one party is the white man's party, then there is no place else for black people to participate in this very narrow and restricted American political game, except in the Democratic Party. And so when black folks go to the polls to pick who the Democratic presidential candidate is going to be, what they are most concerned about is picking somebody that they believe will beat the nominee 
of the white man's party. That is the overarching concern. And so they pick the candidate they think is strongest. But in this capitalist society, the candidate who seems to be strongest is the one that is backed by the corporate media, the one who gets favorable press. And he's the one, or she's the one, that has the most money in their campaign coffers, which they get, of course, from rich people. That candidate would be the corporate party. And so in every single recent Democratic primary race, we see black folks, despite the fact that they are the most left-wing constituency in the country, backing the corporate candidate in the primaries and thereby being labeled conservatives. They're not conservatives. Their attention is on electability, 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 and that's all. Wow. I look back and we've seen so many times where we've watched African-Americans gunned down in the streets. We see drug war and how it's been absolutely ravaging the African-American community when they use the drugs no more than the white man does. And you see the absolute disparity of treatment at every level. And it's no wonder that people desperate to find a way to maintain some level of power, some level of control in their lives, even if it is incorrect, even if it is in this case, as you say, because of the powers that be, because of the corporate media, because of the capitalist society we're in, it leaves people on the outside looking in. And believe me, black folks do know that Joe Biden is partially responsible for that mayhem and murder by cops on the streets. They're aware of his role in the crime bill. They know who he is, but they also know he's not Trump. And that seems to trump all the other considerations. But there's another factor involved here, because I think that the masses of black folks could be persuaded Bernie Sanders has a better chance of beating Trump than Joe Biden does. And in fact, that is the truth. And I think most polls show that. But standing in the way of having a rational discussion about electability is the black misleadership class. That's the black political class. We call them misleadership class as a kind of weaponizing the discussion. There's somebody that we have to beat. But anyway, this entirely democratic black political class has a vested interest in this party. And the Democratic Party is so pervasive in the black community, there really is no comparison with political parties and any other community in the country. The Democratic Party was the one that opened itself up after the great struggles and victories of the 1960s and said, you can now come and play full citizen politics in this party. And so black folks, many of them, believe that it was really their party. And so today, basically all the civic organizations in the black community, the NAACP, the Urban League, are annexes, at least every election cycle, of the Democratic Party. The fraternities and sororities are outposts 
of the Democratic Party in Black America. The churches, most of them, even Pentecostal churches that say they don't want to get involved in earthly things, do get involved, many of them, in earthly politics as Democrats every election cycle. So the pervasiveness, the permeatedness of the Black community with this Democratic Party, there is no comparison with any other community. So throwing off this yoke is going to be a very, very difficult struggle, but an internal struggle that the Black community must engage in because half of Black America, the half, the younger half, isn't buying into this sacredness, this sanctity of the Democratic Party. And they are in favor of Bernie Sanders, but they're not as likely to vote as the older Black folks. And that's what tipped the scales for Biden in these last two Super Tuesdays. I used to go to a church in Clinton, Maryland called From the Heart Christian Church. It was an AME church, 25,000 strong. And I was brought by a friend from work. She was like, it's going to be weird for you, Steve. I know you're a white boy coming into an all black church, but I'm telling you, you're going to love it. And I'm from DC. So I was like, okay, I'm coming. And I came and I absolutely fell in love. And Pastor Cherry, God rest his soul. He gave some of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. And then all of a sudden came politics time and it was like the Bill Clinton show. And I couldn't quite understand it. It didn't make any sense to me. And you know, I was like, Hey, Pastor Cherry, you know, you talked about this in sermon. I said, this is where Clinton stands on the, what's up, you know, <laughs> what's going on. He was like, Oh, the Lord. And, and, and I just said, Oh, okay, man, this is beyond me. This is too much. I couldn't understand. And believe me when I say this, I wanted to, but I have no perspective. And what you've just said, it's both frightening and awe-inspiring that at least I'm getting the crack behind the curtain to see. Among older Black folks, there still is that feeling that what is good for the Democratic Party is good for Black America. But more importantly, for the Blackness leadership class, what is good for the Democratic Party is good for them personally, because their upward mobility their jobs, their prospects for business advancement, all of that is wrapped up in the Democratic Party. And so they use their influence to do the party's bidding in Black America. So in many ways, Black America is not just captive to the Democrats by the duopoly system, but has a whole cadre of Democratic Party operatives masquerading as defenders of Black people's rights within it. And that is the Blackness leadership class. So these are like gatekeepers into these communities and the power brokers, if you will, and they don't want to let go of that, huh? That's what I'm hearing you say anyway, I think. That's right. Their whole uh, fortunes are tied up with the institutional Democratic Party. They don't see any future without it. They certainly aren't going to join any kind of revolution that upsets the two capitalist corporate party governance because that's where their bread and butter is. So they are the profoundly reactionary element in the Black community. Not Black folks as a whole, but this element that is wedded to a corporate 
institution. That is the Democratic Party, a corporate institution. And there are many, many, many tens of thousands of these folks, and people call them our leaders. So you had a quote in there saying that the hand that picked the cotton picks the president. And I was like, wow, that is almost, that's too deep. But that resonated with me. Can you explain the genesis of that? Well, in fact, that's been out there in Black Democratic political circles for a long time. The problem with hands that pick cotton will pick presidents is that it basically celebrates Black folks playing a big role in whoever that president is. And that's part of a so-called strategy. It's really not worthy of the name. But what passes for an electoral strategy among these Black Democrats, and that is that all the Black folks need to get together behind a candidate, whoever that candidate is. The theory that if there are enough Black folks, if there is enough unity among the Black voters behind a particular candidate, that candidate will have no choice but to listen to Black people's demands whenever we get around to making any demands. But all that really means is that whichever candidate has the most money in the Democratic Party, who has the most institutional clout, can gather the most Black votes. And then those Black folks who don't go along with that candidate can be bullied into joining the rest of the herd on pain of being called someone who's disrupting the necessary unity of Black America. We need to put forward a unified face. And if you don't support the candidate that most of us are supporting, well, you're showing our weakness. You're putting us at a disadvantage. You're going against the race. And that's the kind of game that they play. And they're playing it already and trying to beat down these young supporters of Bernie. I watched this Cornell West spoke truth to power about Barack Obama. And he was eviscerated and castigated and kicked out of the club, so to speak, and pushed out of society. I mean, and it was kind of amazing to me because everything he said, he documented. It wasn't like he made anything up and he was just destroyed. Is this kind of the outsider thing? They make you the other. They give you this otherness. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, you know, let me say this about Cornell West. Cornell West was no way destroyed. If you try to walk one block down the street with Cornell West, you better have about an hour's time on your hands, because that's how long it will take you to get one block walking down the street with Cornell West. People stop their cars and get out to talk to Cornell West. Black folks and white people from all walks of life. Cornell West is an icon. He is broadly and deeply loved and appreciated in Black America. And as an icon, he could not be destroyed. Now, Tavis Smiley, who shared a program with Cornell West and also got on the wrong side of the Obama crowd, he was essentially destroyed in terms of his relationship with the Black community, but not Cornell West. He is indestructible. He's an icon. He'll last as an icon longer than Obama. 
I love the guy. I mean, he's just amazing. But I just watched how vicious the attacks from the establishment were on him. I mean, they tried to do everything they could to discredit him. I'm so glad to hear the man's just taller. I mean, he's taller than heck to me, but, you know, who am I? That really gives me a lot of hope. Yes, and folks understand that Cornell West is a man of principle. So when he was slimed and maligned, folks said that he turned against Obama because he couldn't get enough tickets to the White House. People didn't believe that because they saw that this genius of an intellectual who has had posts at Harvard and Princeton and is back at Harvard again, that he has put his own financial future and professional future on the line to speak truth to power, as you said. So people don't believe it when he's accused of breaking with Obama for some narrow personal reasons. Let me ask you a question. Obviously, as someone that's interested but not part of community, you know, when you hear people talking about the black community, does that bother you? They're speaking as a collective. Is it a collective or what is the actual movement? Is there a movement? What is going on behind the scenes that people like myself aren't seeing? Well, I'm a revolutionary nationalist and also a socialist. And if you're a revolutionary nationalist, you believe that Black Americans are a nation. And I believe that Black Americans are a nation of people. And nations of people have lefts and rights and centers and various different tendencies like any other nation. So when you ask a question like, what is going on with Black folks? A whole lot is going on with Black folks. Some of it quite contradictory, just like with white folks. Every time you watch television, they speak as if they're speaking about one person, like this one thing, this static constant that is not diverse, that is not of differing values and differing priorities and so forth. They speak as a block. And this is usually a corporate media, of course. So this is the pervasive narrative. And that's why I'm asking you, in your own words, what does this look like? I mean, get rid of this mainstream narrative, this nonsense that corporate America is trying to sell us. What is the real story? Well, first of all, the phenomenon that you just described comes from two quarters. One is just plain white supremacy, which refuses to see other people as people. So they've got to be just some faceless mask. What do the Chinese think? Chinese are inscrutable or whatever kind of description you want to put on folks that you don't really recognize as people. But for the Black misleadership class, which is the gatekeepers, and would like to get paid for their services to the powers that be, it's in their interest to say that they have the pulse of Black America, they know what Black people want, and if you just pay me nicely, I'll tell you what it is. Well, there are various currents in Black America, but as I said at the beginning of our talk, basically the Black political spectrum is too far to the left of the white political spectrum. I did a study about 15 years ago and found that Black folks who self-select in surveys and call themselves conservatives are actually 
certainly in bread and butter issues, to the left of white people who call themselves liberal. And what black people who call themselves conservative are really referring to is they're conservative compared to other black people. They're conservative in terms of their perception of morals and decorum, not necessarily in terms of Medicare for all and unemployment insurance and the right of people to housing. They're just as left-leaning as other folks. And so that has to be, first of all, understood that the Black political spectrum is a leftist one. The problem is, and I have to keep on going back to the structure, the problem is that in this duopoly system, that leftish polity cannot express itself because it cannot be expressed in the Democratic Party, being a corporate party. And it cannot be expressed if Black folks' main fear is the election of the white supremacist candidate from the white man's party. So you censor yourself. You censor your own vote. You say, I'm not going to vote for the guy who I agree with. I'm not going to vote for him because those mean white people will gang up on him and call him a socialist and a communist and a radical, and he's going to lose. So I'm going to go and support this mild-mannered, business-friendly Democrat that most of the white people will line up behind just for the sake of beating that demonic candidate that the white man's party is going to run. And that's why black people didn't support Barack Obama in 2008 until he won the Iowa primary and proved that white people would vote for him. So all of a sudden, his support among black folks, rank and file, went from 50% to damn near 90% overnight. You know, I look back, I remember when Bill Clinton was losing. He was not the front runner in his first run. And all of a sudden he played the saxophone and different things started happening. And Bill Clinton suddenly leapt to the front of the pack. And it was kind of a strange scenario, but a lot of people joked around that he was the first black president. And I still don't quite understand that. But can you talk a little bit about Well, that, of course, was nonsense. I'm not going to engage in the psychobabble that goes on and passes for political commentary that compares Bill Clinton and his background, his childhood in poverty in Hope, Arkansas, and how even the fact that he's a hustler <laughs> appeals to some black people. That's a bunch of crap. I'll tell you when Bill Clinton became popular, at least among the black political class. And that was when Newt Gingrich got his contract on America forces out. And black people across the board saw that as the rise of the new Confederacy. We'd already been through Reagan, who was Confederate-like, but here's the real thing, Newt Gingrich and the contract on America. And the perception among lots of black people was that all that stood between and of course, Gingrich won the Congress. <laughs> all right. And so the perception was that all that stood between the Confederates and Black folks was Bill Clinton. And they invested their trust in him. And to the extent that Gingrich 
and the Confederates did not have their way with us, whatever that was supposed to be. They thanked Bill Clinton. Clinton used that situation in which black folks were dependent on him to beat back Newt Gingrich to, in fact, join the Republicans and pass the crime bill and get rid of welfare as we knew it, which was his Democratic Leadership Council right-wing corporate agenda all along. But by that time, the myth had been already successfully promulgated that Black people love Clinton. And all you got to do is come to our churches and act like you like the music and you become an honorary Black. But I just told you what the real adventure and drama was. It was Bill Clinton triangulating himself between the hardcore racist right Newt Gingrich and his legions and Black folks and acting like he's the one who will be their defender. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. I look back at this, and to me, the third way, that whole idea of how do we break away these right-wing Dixiecrat Democrats, the Reagan Democrats, and they had been getting their butt handed to them, and all of a sudden you got a rather weak George W., the senior, you got a weak Bush coming in there trying to tread on the heels of Reagan, and then you've got the recession and so forth, and you know the time for Democrats, they've been wandering the desert for a long time and they figured, well, hell, let's go ahead and become Republicans, but with better bedside manners. And really is shocking to me to see, you look at all the horrors. I mean, the reinventing government in and of itself was such an atrocity to everybody, but minority communities in particular. I've read so much about the welfare reform and how that kind of stuff really devastated the communities. And then you look, I cannot get past the idea of him. And here is one of the ways that being so wedded to the Democratic Party and being under the thumb of our own Black misleadership Democratic Party class is so debilitating politically for the community. Because note that none of these Black Democratic establishment politicians have fought to bring back welfare better than as we knew it. It's as if they have acquiesced in all of these abominations that Clinton and the Gingrichites together committed against Black America. Nowadays, they don't even call for a Marshall Plan for the cities. Ever since 1970, every four years, 
that used to be the mantra of the black politicos. Marshall Plan for the city. Marshall Plan for the city. But once Barack Obama, the first black presidential candidate, was out there, the black misleadership class didn't even ask for a Marshall Plan for the cities. So no restoration of that which these neoliberal Democrats took from black people, and now not even a call for a Marshall Plan for the cities. They are absolutely, totally useless. Their only game is to get their party elected so that the money keeps flowing. So let me ask you, obviously, I tread in independent territories. I'm curious, obviously, with the duopoly large and in charge in the United States and it failing us so miserably, what is the go forward plan? Ask Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is actually the biggest threat to the duopoly yet, uh, certainly in the post-war era. I don't know if he knows that. I don't know if he intends to be that. The conditions that have been created by this, his second run on a social democratic and therefore unacceptable platform for the Democratic Party, these are new conditions that do threaten to split the party. I was anticipating that there would be a split coming from the left, that Bernie would do much, much better in the primaries, and they would, by hook or crook, deny him the nomination, causing a wholesale exit by his folks. But I think that there is as much chance of the split coming within the Democratic Party from the right, because Michael Bloomberg didn't get in this race in order to win the nomination. Michael Bloomberg knew that this party would never nominate him for president. He did it in order to legitimize his Democratic credentials so that he could then proceed to buy the party with his billions of dollars to take over the Democratic National Committee, to be the financial backbone of these neoliberal right-wing corporate Democratic office holders, to be the financial sugar daddy, to primary any of these kind of leftish AOC-type Democrats that might get in. But he needed to legitimize himself as a Democrat to do that, because you don't move billions of dollars to take over a party in secret. That can't be done. So in a sense, Bloomberg's Democratic presidential campaign, his expenditure of $500 million on it, was a way to launder the money that he has already been using to take over the Democratic National Committee. And when he does, he's going to make it a totally inhospitable, a very hostile environment for leftish politics of any kind. That's what's coming, and that's going to force even the most mildly radical folks out of the Democratic Party. That split is coming, and the impetus is coming from both the left and the right. Wow. Now that is some deep stuff there. I saw this coming, but I didn't think about it quite like that, because you saw that happen in the last election, where the Clinton Foundation basically put the finances directly in. They owned it. They owned it, and it's Bloomberg 
and his cronies turn. Clinton is a phony ruling class person. She's a hustler and a thief, you dig? And some of her money is really unusable because it's illegal or becomes illegal when she uses it for those political purposes. But the real oligarchy, Bloomberg and his friends, and he'll be joined in this venture reshaping the Democratic Party, their money's legal and it's infinite. It's limitless. Wow. That's chilling. That's absolutely chilling. What do you see as the go forward with this, Glenn? Well, there is no going forward. The duopoly has not just been a cage for Black America, a particular cage for Black America, because there's already a white man's party, as I explained. But the duopoly party is a cage for all non-corporate politics. It basically says we have two governance parties and they're both capitalist and you will fashion your politics accordingly. That's why we don't have a left electoral politics in this country. People want to be part of the game. So they want to be part of electoral politics. They understand, lots of folks understand, that street politics is important too, but people want to elect folks who vote for actual laws that can create actual programs. And so they acquiesce and try to conform enough to the corporate agenda and language to pass muster in the Democratic Party. But we are experiencing an acute crisis of capitalism, and the younger folks of all races know it. That's why they favor Bernie Sanders, because they don't see any future in this system. That's why they have no problem with the word socialism, because they've had too damn much of capitalism, and they don't like it. They understand that what this system is embarked on and has been on for 40 years is a race to the bottom. That's what austerity really is. I wish people would stop using that term. Nobody uses it. Nobody likes it. What people understand is a race to the bottom in which wages and working conditions and security for workers all over the world is being systematically degraded by the oligarchy. And that's why the oligarchy gets richer and richer. The transfer of wealth is direct and quite dramatic. And that's why we have three billionaires who own as much as half of the U.S. population. And young people know that. And they can't carry on a politics worthy of the name or that's worth participating in and stay within those narrow capitalist, corporatist boundaries of the Democratic Party. Yeah, it's just amazing. The word austerity, ironically, <laughs> that's been my Twitter handle forever is austerity is murder. And I look out there at the UK and they had a study not too long ago that showed 120,000 suicides, basically social murder. Austerity is murder and literally murder. And I've been harping on this ever since that time. My focus is largely economic policy and looking at this, the United States is steeped in private debt, steeped in all kinds of contraptions and debt traps for regular people. Poverty is damn expensive. And you look around and we are trapped 
we can't go out and be revolutionaries because we can't feed our families. Teeth rotten out of our mouths and mortgages in arrears and people knocking on the doors to foreclose. And it's a real struggle for everyone. And I can only imagine as we go through this, how in the world do they expect us to survive or do they care? Austerity, the race to the bottom, is not just about greed. It's not just about, I'm going to gobble up all of the wealth and I don't care what you folks who are deprived of necessities, I don't care what you think about it. That's part of it, but that doesn't describe a system. It doesn't describe a policy. The race to the bottom is a policy of the ruling capitalist class. The policy is to make workers so precarious, so insecure, so desperate that they will take any job under any terms. To do that, you have to remove all of the social safety net props. Those props are removed not to save money for the federal government to stave off debt. That has nothing to do with it. The same people who remove the social safety net add more and more money to the U.S. debt for the military. They remove the social safety net to create precarity. Precarity is the desired result. Desperation is the desired result so that they can lower the quality of jobs as needed in order to squeeze more and more profit up to themselves. It sounds to me like a ginormous power play. This is about creating a new form of slavery, one that has the veneer of legitimacy, one that makes you feel like you made a choice, but you really didn't make a choice. You had no choice in it. It's a new form of serfdom. It is nothing more or less than capitalism in the raw at this stage of the concentration of monopoly capital. It is the way it was predicted it would work. With that said, you've come out, you've said you're a socialist. I'm a socialist. We're all socialist on the side. What in your mind is a socialist play in this capitalist end stage, very dire times? What is our play here? Do we have the power that we think we have? Do we not have enough power? Where are we at in this continuum? There is no socialist play because we don't have any socialist parties, not really. We don't have the numbers. What we are just getting after an ideological drought, so to speak, of more than half a century is some consciousness, especially among younger people, that the capitalist system is the enemy. What is the play? There are lots of constituencies in this country, all of whom have contradictions with the ruling class, a ruling class that gets smaller and smaller, although richer and more bloatedly rich all of the time. The first stage in this struggle, and we are way behind, we are quite backward politically as a society. The first stage is to get a common language that we can speak, where we understand each other. We have coalitions that are only coalitions in terms of backing a Democratic Party. That's it. These are not real working coalitions for change. They are coalitions for a 
corporate party's election. But we've got a great deal of work to do at the 101 kind of level, advising our fellow folks what a socialist would do if they were in your situation. You know, I look at neoliberalism, which is, I guess, where we are in this thing. And you look at the way that it permeates our sitcoms, the newspaper, even sporting events. Every aspect of our society is infected with this view, this schism, this way of thinking and talking and coming up with there is no alternative kind of mindset. It's not just political. It's every aspect of our lives. This is incredibly massive. That's right. But the real reality assaults that false reality every day. And here we are with this coronavirus. And the United States is the most backward, the least prepared of any of the rich countries for this epidemic. And the reason that they are the least prepared is because they are the most thoroughly ideologically capitalist. That privatization is the watchword. And with privatization, you basically cut up the existing health structures that we did have, and you privatize them. You do that methodically. I get my health care from the VA, the Veterans Administration, which has the only socialized medicine in this country. Really, it's basically much like the British National Health Service, but it's been under assault by Congress, by corporate Congress people of both parties to appeal this National Health Service for veterans apart year by year, parceling it out to private firms. Well, this happens all over the country, not just with the VA, but with health services in general, so that we get to a point where the CDC says that there are 2.5 million kits for testing coronavirus in the country. They know because those kits were sold to various folks, but nobody can tell us where they are. And so only 10,000 Americans have been tested for coronavirus. And there is no central clearinghouse that can tell us where the rest of the 2.5 million kits are. That is a totally defenseless population. And it's been rendered defenseless by the rule of capital. That's absolutely chilling. Chilling. They're watching as people are panicking, people are stocking up, people are freaking out. The long-term effects of people that are already paycheck to paycheck getting laid off and this could really way beyond the threat of just the virus. This could really, truly destroy millions of lives. And the contradictions that it will point out. If, for example, people get compensated for coronavirus or the treatment they might have to want to go for several days in a hospital, which is many thousands of dollars for coronavirus, if the feds pick up the tab for that, why can't they pick up the tab for my cancer or my mother's cancer? You see? That is right on money right there. I mean, this is busting the whole myth right out of the water. This is exactly what it's doing. You're square on. It's perfect. We watched Bernie Sanders put forward what amounts to be the most robust progressive platform. 
every day we come out with some new universal child care, a job guarantee in the form of MLK style. We had every step along the way, this incredible thing. And people, all they could do was say, how are you going to pay for it? It's crazy. We've been snowed. I mean, this is a fiat system. We could spend money like. We have a corporate media owned by five or six corporations. They speak with one voice and their reach is such that they provide the talking points that so many regular folks then parrot. In terms of Bernie Sanders' platform, it is the antithesis of the race to the bottom. And that's why they would rather have him assassinated than let him become the nominee for president. Universal child care, minimum wages, all of these affordable housing, national health care, all of these rightful things create a situation in which a worker can say, I don't want that job. No, I'm not going to take this crap that you just handed me on the job. I quit. You see what I'm saying? It gives workers options. The whole point of the race to the bottom, the austerity regime, is to methodically deprive the working class of any option. So Bernie, although not a socialist, represents a mortal threat to capitalism as it presently is. That is, the capitalists have no other policy, or rather, they have no other vision but this austerity regime. That's all there is. There's nothing else that they can provide. And Bernie's platform, if it became popular, would destroy that vision and leave them, well, I think they'd have to revert to some other kind of rule. It's interesting. You see the racism come out the minute you think about black and brown people suddenly being able to take care of themselves without having to worry about these ridiculous measures. And you can tell because all of a sudden people start worrying about spending money. You never see them flinch with the raising of the military. I mean, what was it? $750 billion and not one nickel raised in taxes. In fact, they had a huge tax cut to go along with it, which should have told us everything we needed to know. But the minute we talk about healthcare, the minute we talk about housing as a right, the minute we talk about healthcare as a right, all of a sudden we got to be responsible and it's ridiculous. We don't see through it. It's like there's some cognitive dissonance and we, the people, they can't quite put this together. Well, you know, it's because the political classes are certainly not going to tell on themselves. Bill Clinton passed on to George W. Bush a huge budget surplus. He amassed that surplus because he didn't want to give poor people <laughs> fully financed programs. So he had plenty of money. He passed that surplus on to George Bush. George Bush was supposed to be the great conservative, worried about budget deficits. He ran through the surplus that Clinton passed on to him within the first year. You know, it's funny you say that. Stephanie Kelton, who is Bernie Sanders' economic advisor, is one of my heroes and one of the reasons why I do what I do. And she did this great interview in Business Insider where they discussed the Clinton surplus. And you got to think about the surplus as a split on the ledger. The public surplus is actually a private sector deficit. And when you flip it around, it's just a mirror. 
And so what they did was they took money out of the economy and starved it of fuel. When the government spends on the people, that's when we thrive. And they've turned this all around to make it seem like the government's got to be responsible. And we think, oh, yeah, government's got to be responsible while we simultaneously put a gun to our own heads, not realizing the government creates the damn currency. It doesn't have to have that problem there. It's astounding to me that we would ask them to somehow or another take away from the little people. You spend at the bottom and it's going to rise anyway, right? I mean, for God's sake, why in the world do they keep starting at the top and thinking that, you know, the rain coming down is somehow or another (laughs) good for us? It just doesn't make sense. You know, we get told by this capitalist class that deficits are bad. And yet we know that this capitalist class is in hock for $200 trillion of speculative derivatives and other instruments. $200 trillion, which is many times the gross economic product of the entire world. It's amazing. I don't really want to dive too far into this, but you look at the Panama Papers, right? I mean, that came out for about 13 seconds. We paid attention to it, and then it was swept under the rug. But it's just insane. There's two different worlds going on, and we ain't part of it. That's for damn sure. It's absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's right. And this is why the corporate media plays such an important role in legitimizing the regime, in making defensible that which is indefensible. They simply don't print the bad news. And that's why, and I'm sure that you've noticed this as well, as I grow older, the New York Times and the Washington Post become progressively less interesting. There's less news in there. And there's a reason for that. There's less news because there's less good stuff to put out there. And they don't put out the bad stuff. (laughs) Pretty soon, (laughs) there'll be nothing but human interest stories in these newspapers because all the real news will be bad. You know, it's funny. Every time I hear people talking about fundraising to fix cancer and fundraising for the cities and, hey, let's go ahead and do some donations, I think to myself, this could all be, Flint's water problems right now, for example, could be solved with a flick of a switch. I mean, just simply write the damn check. Puerto Rico, we don't need to turn them into a serpent. Fix it. It doesn't make sense to me why we didn't just fix New Orleans. Why don't we just fix the shit? Oh, they, they thought they had fixed New Orleans. The fix that they wanted in New Orleans was to get rid of 100,000 poor black people. And they celebrated, and they still celebrate the new New Orleans. The fix for Detroit is to get rid of a similar number, maybe more, black folks in Detroit. And until that happens, they will not remove the vice that makes Detroit almost unlivable, except for a small downtown section that's run by a billionaire. But the rest of Detroit is purposefully unlivable in order to drive out that black population. That's just awful. Look, Glenn, I want to thank you so much. I hope that I can talk to you again because we're just getting going there. And I absolutely find you fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. Tell our listeners how we can find you. Oh, that's easy. Blackagendareport.com. And we have a new issue every Wednesday. Very good. 
with that, Glenn, thank you so much for joining me. As Glenn Ford and Steve Grumbine, Macro and Cheese, everyone, have a great day. We're out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Mindy Donham. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive.